welcome to the Adventure Deficit Podcast. We're here to promote lifelong learning through the context of adventure. Through our one-on-one interviews, we capture in-depth stories across a variety of subjects, emphasizing a new life lesson in every episode. We're on a mission to entertain, educate, and inspire you to embrace new challenges, reflect, push through fears, and get out there in search of your own adventures. We passionately pursue good story, and we'll run, climb, wade, ride, hunt, ski, or paddle our way into new ones, all in search of continual growth. We call it taking our medicine, and we invite you to join us for today's dose. Joining us today is crazy inspirational, professional big mountain skier, Lindsay Dyer. As a professional skier, Lindsay's career has spanned over the course of a decade. She has starred in films that you've heard of, like Teton Gravity Research, Warren Miller, and much more. She has won every single big mountain competition that she's entered. She's been awarded the coveted Female Skier of the Year by Powder Magazine, and she has cemented her place as one of the best big mountain skiers in the world. She is currently working on an awesome project. It's a podcast like ours, uh, except hers is called Showing Up, and she has been interviewing some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry uh, and gleaning some some great insight from them. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but today, Lindsay's going to tell us an adventure story and share some life lessons. Lindsay, welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show. We're so glad to have you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So the format of our show is, is pretty much broken down to three parts. Um, and in the first part, I ask my guests just a bit of background info so that we get a good sense for, for who's taking us into, uh, into an epic adventure. Um, so, Lindsay, what, uh, what are some of the details that kind of helped shape uh, the early life of Lindsay Dyer? Yeah, well, being that you're in Michigan, um, I might start there, which I don't usually. Oh, really? Yeah, I grew up in Sun Valley, Idaho, but my mom is from Michigan. And so we would, every summer, um, some of my best memories are at on Lake Michigan with my family. No uh, way. And full, full extended family. And so I know how special Michigan is. And it's funny people overlook the Midwest, but I know how special the people are and how special the environment is and those lakes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't think of a better summer spot than, than to be out there with your family near the lakes. Totally. So extended family is still out there. Whereabouts, um, are they on east side, west side, lower peninsula, so, upper? They're uh, around Traverse City, and uh, our family had a cottage um, in Elk Lake, and then around there, like Traverse City area. Oh, man. Traverse area is beautiful. Um, You are so spot on when you say uh, you know what a treasure it is, because it really is. So I love it, too, that people underestimate it, and they they think that they need to go to the Bahamas for <laughs> white, pristine beaches and um, and clear water, but it's, it's closer than most people think. And Great Lakes. They are mm-hmm. a natural wonder. Beautiful time of the year. Uh, summers in Michigan are something to uh, 
to behold, that's for sure. So you yeah. spent most of your childhood years in Sun Valley then? How long were you there? Yeah, so I grew up in Sun Valley all through my, uh, through growing up until I went to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was one of those towns that was, it, you only realize in looking back how lucky I, I was to be pretty sheltered um, and basically brought up by the mountains. Um, because both my parents worked several jobs. And so there wasn't a whole lot to do if you weren't athletic. So uh, I played every sport and um, every sport I could except basketball. So pretty much all outdoor sports. Um, and I loved team sports uh, and then art, either on in nature or actually in art classes. Okay. So did you go to local public school there in Sun Valley, or was it a small school? Was it a big school? What was that like? Yeah, I, I started at the, the private school, which um, was called, it's called community school. It's in Idaho, but you'd never know it <laughs> if you've heard of Sun Valley. It's, it's kind of where the, um, back in like the 70s was the, the coolest place, right? So all of these uh it was a combination of fancy pants, Los Angeles celebrities coming for their ski vacation, uh, mixed with, you know, ragtag real Idaho uh, ranchers, yeah. right? So my family was a ski family. My dad had come from Seattle, and he was had had a stint on the U.S. ski team um, on the downhill. Uh, circuit and mom had come from Michigan as like this rebellious um, mom's stories are amazing about like going to beach parties on her sailboat like one person sailboat uh, I remember these awesome stories like, beach parties such I was always like oh I want to do that and kind of fashionista um, excited by the the glitz and the glam of Sun Valley, like all her favorite things, right? Like being on the mountain, but also um, she was a clothing designer. And so uh, she would outfit all of the rich and famous from like Schwarzenegger. We have all these pictures with him um, and Maria Shriver, you know, when they would come through town, they would call, where is, he would always be like, where is Masha? You know, to, to come get outfitted for the season so does that i don't know does that give you for sure yeah so sun valley was yeah this combination of like very wealthy people Mm -hmm. um and and then and then rancher type i didn't know what to compare myself to right some kids would get the the um on their 16th birthday like have a range rover driving to the parking lot of school and then some kids would would you know be raising cattle and not make it to school that day. <laughs> you know what I mean? so, Doing 4-H, yeah. We didn't have 4-H. Um, I know that's a that's a Michigan thing. I'm surprised we didn't, but um, maybe there was, but I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, I think I think growing up between in that area, it definitely showed me. You know, I was pretty used to. My parents worked, so I, I often was picked up or whatnot by other friends' moms to go to ballet or. Or whatnot. So I was used to hanging out in other people's houses, mm-hmm. and it, it was not a big deal to like. One of my best friends 
they had eight guest bedrooms and a giant indoor-outdoor pool and a horse arena in the back. And um, they had an indoor gallery in their home. Like, And that didn't seem... That wasn't unnormal, if that makes sense. But what I... And, um, and then another one, uh, her father, like, had to do with some of the first cell phones. Um, and it was kind of that same situation, but but I literally never met her family. She was raised by uh, raised by nannies. And so hmm. um, I saw the, like, what money can buy and also that it, it's certainly not everything, hmm. if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. And by that, you mean you got to see some of the, the negative attributes or some of the downfalls of what, uh, yeah, well, some, some people that you assume have it all right. We, we might put those type of people on a pedestal, but, um, these girls were, their parents were never even around. They were absentee. So I guess that's my point is that, that money isn't everything. It's certainly some. It creates some level of security and happiness, but not everything. Yeah, yeah, it does. I agree with you, um, but it certainly isn't everything. So, as far as uh, as far as high school years, middle school, high school, what was that like? Confusing. Like I think it probably is for every student. <laughs> I assume. Um, yeah, I was pretty sensitive, and um, bullying was a was a big thing, mm. uh, and. That was kind of where I I chose not really to engage in the like kind of social I don't know uh, pecking order. Hmm. I would li- that's when I just started uh, skiing a lot more. Um, skiing was great because you didn't. It was you always had an excuse of why you couldn't. Uh, you had something to do on the weekends and you had something to do after school. And so I didn't, it, it took some pressure off of uh, <clears throat> uh, the social aspect of that really, I think comes into play in middle school. Yeah. Um, uh, I was a pretty confident kid, like uh, first, second, third grade. I was uh <laughs> class president and that sort of thing and then middle school it was like whoa uh two different schools were kind of brought together at that time so introduced to a lot of different kids and the social order changed a lot okay and uh and I just kind of chose to kind of check out and I just went skiing and didn't really deal with who's cool and who's not and what are you wearing and Mm. um and like who likes who all that was like overwhelming for me and what was so great about skiing is that the mountain didn't I didn't have to deal with any of that (laughs) mountain treats everyone the same and it gave me something to focus on other than these things that are kind of out of your control as a middle school kid when you're you know who's popular who's cool who's not you know all of that Hmm. Uh, Yeah. yeah and I can understand how skiing would be some reprieve from kind of that social hierarchy that I can already envision taking place in an area with such affluence. Um, that, and, and, uh, that's, I guess, when, like, boys are a huge, mm. a, a huge part of what's important to you, you know? Like, um, and it gave me this alternative sense of confidence, you know, that had nothing to do with any of that. I'm so grateful for that now. That's awesome. 
Okay. So you, even at that age, I mean, in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, you were, uh, you were keeping up with the boys and staying ahead of the boys. It sounds like. Um, it wasn't, that was actually something I really struggled with was competition, like keeping up and, and staying ahead, all that stuff mm-hmm. were foreign concepts that I never really understood. I really loved team sports and my only, um, struggle with skiing is that it, it's an individual sport. And so when they started, you know, I grew up with it as the most fun thing you did with your friends. And then it switched to this thing where they time you and then you're, you're uh, being compared to your friends. Um, and that was a really confusing time. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, to kind of look at look at the older kids and see what they were doing. Like, well, what are you supposed to be doing in this? Okay, so you, you're, you guys want us to go around these gate things, um, this red and blue. <laughs> if you look at ski racing, you know, it's like, um, to a little kid introduced to it, it, it's really confusing. So you have to go around a blue flag, then a red flag, then a blue flag, and whoever gets to the bottom the fastest is the best. <laughs> um, and the fastest is decided in hundreds of a second, you know, like faster than you can blink an eye. Um, and so it didn't make sense to me, um, but that was the, you know, the structure. And so if I wanted to continue skiing, that's what I needed to do. Uh, and that's, that's when also like in middle school, when it became more serious and less, less about playing and fun with your friends and adventure. Um, the thing about mountains are, and most ski athletes that you will, um, if, if you would interview them, they would probably say, well, you know, our parents would just drop us off at the mountain and we would kind of be raised by the mountain. Um, and that's so much of how it is. It's like this literally this giant playground and you, you feel like you're in charge of it and you're the Kings of the mountain. Um, it's adventure and learning and challenging yourself with, with your friends. And then it, then it turned into ski racing, which is like I said, more structured, more regimented, more competitive. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was challenging because it didn't make sense to me, this competition and comparison thing. And it, it definitely took a lot of joy out of it. <laughs> so part of you, part of what I'm gathering, Lindsay, is that your your DNA, your fabric, is not so much competitive, but much more individualistic. Well, it become, but it was learned. The structure was introduced, and it was like, well, if you want to be successful at this, then this is the structure. Kind of sink or swim. Okay. <clears throat> so you learned you learned how competition worked. Exactly. Okay. It was not intrinsic. Um, and you carried that with you into your high school years. Tell us a little bit about that um, as far as, you know, the, the maturation of your skill set, uh, how it progressed to the next chapter. So kind of middle school progressed into high school. And again, I'm so thankful that I had that outlet of skiing to take me out of, out of school, which is so, I think, so hard on so many kids. Um, we're confused. There's, you're not, you're not necessarily um inspired by what's going on at school and then the social stuff is is really difficult because you're being led by a bunch of other kids that have no idea what's going on um and so it was just again so thankful to be able to have the outlet of skiing and ski team um 
that exposed me to different role models that maybe they weren't always the best role models. My coaches were, um, were basically only a couple of years older than me in a lot of cases. Hmm. Um, and were driving us to the, to races and partying. And, um, so I kind of started taking the responsibility role of like making sure they didn't fall asleep at, <laughs> on our, on our gnarly drives in vans every weekend to or from the next, the next race, usually in a blizzard, um, looking out for, for animals on the road, um, making sure this like van load of kids stayed, stayed safe. And, um, and, and kind of looking to them as role models of like, obviously I want to be a rad skier like them. Um, but also like, how do we navigate this thing called life? And, and so, yeah, had some, I was always really looking up to my, and anyone around, whether it was my family and aunts and uncles, like I said, in Michigan and how they were doing it and cousins, um, to like the older kids on ski team and, and how they were doing it. And <laughs> there were good and bad influences. Um, yeah. Um, uh, like obviously some really hard workers, but also people who figured out how to like, shoplift so yeah. the good and bad of looking up to your peers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would you say that uh it gave you a better idea of of the crowd that uh you were going to gravitate toward and the crowd that not so much uh was was part of your your future or did you kind of throw them all in one pot and i don't know i think like most people i think we're all just kind of floating around like I, I don't know just going ahead there's a few things i know i love like a few magical powder days that that made me know for certain that I, I knew I loved this skiing thing. Hmm. Where were you <laughs> doing? The rest of life is just pretty confusing. <laughs> yeah, adulting is is a whole different ballgame. Um, oh, you wanted to hear more about high school? Sure. Yeah, let's dig. Um, yeah, I didn't really go all that all that much to 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 school. We traveled a lot for ski team. Seriously. Um, so I was, uh, somehow I was still, um, I didn't think I was cool, but I was still named, I don't know, what do you call them? Homecoming queen three times and <laughs> that sort of thing. But, uh, but for the most part, I just, I wasn't really, really at school. Interesting. I have heard that from uh, my brief encounters with other folks who took skiing uh, to a different level, to a next level. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's consistent with what I've heard from them too, is that the high school years are, are very different than their peers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you just test, would you just take tests um, on the road or would you, I mean, how did, how did homework work? Did you have assignments or did you just check in when you checked in and you were smart enough to kind of adapt? Um, yeah, pretty much. I just had to uh, had to follow through and turn in all my assignments, and um, and was graded just the same way as anyone else. Hmm. Interesting. And you were still you still managed to pull off homecoming queen three years in a row. Love it. Um, yeah, maybe it just wasn't that hard. Maybe school just wasn't that hard. Calculus was hard. That's what I remember. Um, yeah. SATs were really hard. I remember that. That yeah. was stressful. That was that was a tough one, I guess. Like going figuring out the college move, right? That was that was really stressful. Because um, for skiing, you 
basically if you go to college you're it's like you're looked down upon essentially like a, a lot of people who are really on track to make the u.s ski team that's your chance to make the team so you don't um you'll take a what they call a pg year um and go for the skiing stuff and for most of the best ski athletes like you never go back uh and so you're never necessarily equipped for for real life other than this life that you've known starting in middle school which has been you get in a van you 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 work out all the time you're in the gym all the time you're driven to different locations every weekend you race and then do the whole thing over throughout throughout the week um so so for me um I was pretty burnt out ski racing by the time I was graduating um and it seemed like a great way to uh pay for college so I um went to college yeah Uh, yeah I got a ski racing scholarship to MSU in Bozeman and then I started graphic design okay so you went to MSU Montana State Mm -hmm. cool um and you said you you had mentioned you got into their uh graphic design program is that what you primarily focused on in those four years (laughs) Yeah, uh, college for me in the beginning was also a bit disappointing. It was I had this idea that it was going to be this, you know, from what I'd seen in the movies, inspirational, and that's where you're really going to find your passion, and, and professors would be jumping on tables with inspiration. But in, the truth of it seemed a lot more like an extension of high school, you know, like mm. – what football players dating the cheerleader and um, stuff like that. Um, so I was kind of disappointed, but I did make some cool friends, amazing friends. And Montana is a great pl- central place. We had, I loved the combination of kids that, that it attracted, mm. you know, all of the mountain type kids from Alaska and in Washington and Oregon um, to the, the, those same I guess, um, farm kids. Um, so, so that was fun. Just really good, good people. Uh, we had some Minnesota folks like, uh, that good Midwestern mentality mixed with the mountain mountain folks. Um, so some of those people are some of my still best friends today. Um, but it wasn't until like the upper years where the design programs got, um, more intense and that's where I really found, a lot of value in in college. Um, I had some incredible design professors that taught me a lot about life as it relates to design, and that's definitely impacted me in a big way. Mm. So I am really glad that I went to school uh, because I got lucky and found a few amazing mentors. Okay, so just a brief recap. You grew up in Sun Valley. You're Elementary and middle school years are spent primarily in the valley. I mean, home base of Sun Valley, but would be traveling every weekend for different races mm-hmm. across from Utah to Jackson Hole to, um, you know, regionally okay. for racing. Okay. So that continued on in middle school where you kind of sunk your, sunk your hooks into the competitive nature of skiing, uh, which propelled you into... Uh, basically your, your high school years on the road. Um, 
And then college was, were you on the road as much in college as you were in high school? Um, no, we were traveling more, but then it was with friends, right? Um, okay. More kind of for less structured ski racing and more friends' adventures. You know, spring break, we, we had five people into a <laughs> tiny car and drove to Mexico from Bozeman, <laughs> Montana, and, you know, trying to live the spring break dream. <laughs> awesome. That sounds like a full adventure story in and of itself. That was a good one, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope it doesn't involve... Mexican jail. No, no. <laughs> I mean, what were you focused on? What really got you? What inspired you? What part of the design? Yeah. Graphic design, I think, is so applicable in so many ways. Uh, so, and it can have such an impact. My favorite type of design is uh, printmaking. And, and I think street art is something that I've always been fascinated with. Hmm. Um, you know, sharing a message um, and obviously it can be used in so many capacities for advertising. Obviously it's the main one that you can make a living from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where I saw it was a practical application of art that I had always loved. Um, and yeah, printmaking, big flat, um, bursts of bright color have always been something I'm attracted to. And so, yeah, I've been designing that's probably been as consistent as, as being in the mountains. Ah, that makes sense. Now I know why you were drawn to the Adventure Deficit logo. Yep, love the colors. I think it kind of gets us up to uh, the, the early 20s. Well, not, not totally, actually. So um, in college, I had, I, had, I had followed the rules, right? Um, all the way through into college, right? Even going to college, like, well, that's just what you do. You go to college because that's what the expectation is so that you can get a good job, so that you can uh, support yourself. You know, I'd followed the rules uh, and the expectations of society. And uh, my sophomore year, the next, I did the, the expectation of, going to Europe and spending a year abroad studying. Uh, and that was probably one of the best years of my life because it, uh, it was the first time I, I didn't ski for a, a winter. It's the first and last time um, I haven't been skiing. And it was so great for me to be exposed to people that were interested in more than than sports, right? Like to, to recognize that the world uh, was so much bigger than athletics. Um, and not one of these people was an athlete. Not one of the conversations was about athletics. And it was so healthy for me to see that there was so many other avenues of focus. And mm-hmm. that because when you're, when you're in a sport um, from such a young age at such a high level, it, you really do start to feel like it's your entire world. And therefore, it's your identity and uh, and your performance in it just starts to decide your value and um, it can get really messed up um, emotionally. It was really healthy for me to, to be to recognize that there's such a bigger world, whether it was living in Italy for a year or and then just all of the different paths you could take uh, on the art side. Um, but what it also did was kind of reinvigorate my love for 
for the skiing that I loved, which was powder skiing and skiing mm-hmm. with my friends, um, beyond the competitive aspect of, you know, how, where did you end up in the rankings of, um, ski racing? Right. So, uh, so that after that year abroad, the next natural expectation was to go to, can, can we um, hit pause just for a quick second? Sure. Where did you go? Where did you go in Europe? Uh, we traveled all over Europe, uh, Italy. So we spent, it was, it was such an incredible program. A lot of it was focused on art history. And so we went from Milan to Rome to oh, Venice cool. to um, basically all of following the art history of the area, which took us through all these incredible cities and towns. And then we spent three months in the Umbria countryside studying uh, and practicing printmaking. And um, and that was in a, literally in a castle uh, in in the countryside. What? <laughs> so I would, I would run every day through the orchards and through, uh, you know, olive fields. And it was just awesome. And that's where I learned printmaking and learned how much I loved printmaking you know uh, etchings and um block prints and there's so many aspects to, to you know where you can take it but yeah i would kind of sketch these landscapes and then bring them back to my prints and really loved it so that was huge and then when i came back from that the next natural progression was to go um to get an internship and this was my sophomore year of college i got an internship the best graphic design internship I could. Um, it was super competitive. It was hard to get in. I got uh, ended, found myself in San Francisco for the summer uh, at a video game company, um, making you know, making real money as an intern and yeah. uh, you know, like really doing the thing, like real world job cubicle. And, more of that validation that you were talking, that you were kind of speaking toward, right? Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. as far as, like, society is concerned, I would have been winning, right? Winning mm-hmm. this game of what your the expectation for for finding success. Um, and at that same moment, I was, I was like, wow, if, I was absolutely miserable. <laughs> um, and I was like, if this is, if this, I've done everything right. You know, I've, I've done everything they, they told me to do. And, um... And I'm not happy, uh, deeply unhappy. And so I really had a, a profound moment of um, checking myself and recognizing that if this way, the expected way, wasn't going to f- be fulfilling for me, then what was? And that's when I I looked back at um, at what really did make me happy, and that was that was these memories of skiing with my friends um and I had grown up watching the ski movies with my family uh Warren Miller was was a big one at that time um and I remember even as a little kid watching those films and and being like I could do that um but I had never seen females in those films um the women were always kind of portrayed as the like hot babes at the bottom but I I had always uh, known that I could do whatever I saw those guys doing. And so when I thought 
in that moment of like, I'm not going to survive in the expected way. I came across this Thoreau quote, which was impactful at the time was go confidently in the direction of your dreams. And then the other one was, what would you dare to accomplish if you knew you couldn't fail? And basically I was at a time in my life, you know, I was like 19 uh, and I felt like I had time to go towards this dream, even if I did fail. I had time to fail. I was like, I want to try to find a way to be in one of those Warren Miller films and help inspire people um, through an art form, filmmaking. And it was a huge, huge risk. I guess I had always felt like, well, that's cool, but of course I could never do that. And at that moment, looking at the alternative, I was like, I felt like I had nothing to lose. Does that make sense? You wouldn't have known that unless you fully felt the the depth misery yeah exactly first i had to really really um hit that was my rock bottom Mm. and um and ironically it was in success right um it wasn't some like drugs or whatever it was it was uh having followed the rules and then confronting that with like okay well i'm gonna go try this thing and and it's a basically i have time to fail (laughs) i'll forgive myself i've got to try uh and and so, and it was one of the most, it was the most powerful time in my life because for the first time in my life, I had a purpose that had nothing to do with, with the shoulds of um, the outside world's expectations and pleasing the outside world in any way. And it was 100% my own personal goal. And ironically, also, it made everyone laugh at me and um, made other people uncomfortable around me. Mm. My family and friends didn't didn't get it. They didn't. They literally were like, who do you think you are? Um, like, no one's done. No, you can't do that. You know, you can't get paid to ski. You can't, you can't do that. Um, because we didn't really, there, there were no examples. where I wasn't like growing up looking at, looking at pro athletes that I wanted to be. You know, it wasn't like that. It was uh, just really, I want to see if I can make this dream come true. And literally everyone laughed at me. Um, and in that way, it was also so amazing because for the first time in my life, I didn't need that affirmation. I didn't need that outside acceptance. Um, and I started going to yoga, um, and I got an incredible teacher who kind of, um, helped me individually on where, where I could, like I could grow. And he also helped develop my uh, meditation practice. Um, so I would go practice with him once a week and then for the rest of the week, I would do it on my own in my dorm room. Um, and it was just such a fun practice. I combined it with dancing and it was just my thing. Hmm. And then a visualization meditation at the end of, of how I wanted my life to, how I wanted this dream to unfold. And it was very focused on, um, this film segment segment that I had in my head. That's fantastic. Um, wisdom coming from a 19 year old gal at that moment you knew a you had time and you didn't need to go back for a dose of what you already hated well and you know it's it i'm not necessarily proud of it but i i was looking at my mortality in that way like mm. i will not survive at in the normal way mm. and i know for a lot of people that they i'm not trying to make anything wrong like that it is it is the, a right great way for a lot of, but, but for me, it just, um, it, um, 
I wasn't going to survive. So it was like, well, if I'm, what do I have to lose in trying this thing that does light me up? Cool. Yeah. So did you have from your, I mean, from your more competitive background in, in, uh, skiing, did you have some industry insiders to get you, um, close enough to that, that Warren Miller goal to where you said, all right, I can come up with a plan here. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, number one, I knew how to train, right. And, and I, I have to give that to ski team. The, the ski team had taught me how to, how to train. Um, but in, but up until then I had been doing it for other people, you know, showing up for my coaches, showing up because that's just what you did. But in this case, I was finally using that as, as a tool, right. So on how to train, um, and all of that work with coaches, I could finally take that on myself and not need that outside, you know, coach. And then beyond that, my cousin was one of the pioneers of big mountain skiing. Her name's AJ Cargill. And she, all the way through um, in high school, she had been trying to get me to go more of this route. Uh, you know, she was, she was on the mobile tour uh, and she was hanging out with um, McConkie and, and other like big names as far as the uh, free skiing movement, which as a ski racer, I didn't care. Like I had no idea what she was talking about, and like ski racing was the only was the whole world, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I she had always been there, kind of. Even as a young girl, she she kidnapped me in a few instances from my ski races and had me go jump off cliffs in powder, and and that had always been fun and novel. But I never it had never clicked to me that that was a that was an avenue for me. Would your coaches have just flipped out if they knew you were up to that? Um, actually, I think they would have absolutely supported it because I think they saw that, uh, in me early, like they, they were actually encouraging me to do a few times, um, to do, to go the mobile route, um, because they saw that natural, um, I guess talent in that way. But Mm -hmm. my, my family was concerned that I would hurt myself and I would blow up my knees like so many of them. Okay, so um, so many of those athletes the, do. Yeah. So they they didn't support it, and so that's why I never put that route. Um, and I don't mean to cut you off here, but just so that the listeners have a better idea of, I mean, Lindsay wasn't just part of uh, a ski club, um, and it's it goes without saying to so many listeners. But um, for those of us who weren't entirely uh, familiar with what level you had had gotten to, can you can you shine a little bit of light on that? Yeah, yeah. So I had, by that time, I had won the Junior Olympics. Um, I was very much on track to the Olympic route. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't even actually aware of it, but my ski team was raising money to send me to the big races in Europe. And, uh, and I had sponsors and, um, and all those things that I think, I guess are cool now, but at the time I didn't even realize I had them. I just, I just had skis and I had boots and I, <laughs> I was going to all these crazy places and it didn't occur to me that all of those had a cost and, um, and I was being supported in, in covering those. And, and when I, when I actually did become aware that I had that support, um, there was one night when, uh, 
we had to show up at this dinner and they had me put this t-shirt on and on the back it had all of my statistics um and that I wasn't even aware of um at the time I was in the top three in the nation for super G and uh and up there as well for downhill so like I said just very in the line uh, on the Olympic focus uh for and uh, had that a bit of that expectation um for my team and for my for my town and as soon as I figured that out (laughs) I crumbled (laughs) I couldn't handle the pressure because I didn't want to let anyone down um and that's when my stats started going down I think (laughs) so interesting yeah fascinating um so that's the level that I was at and so then like I said usually from there you would if you have Olympic goals, um, you, you go towards those versus going to college. And for me, I didn't have those goals. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I chose to go to college. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, totally. I just wanted to make sure that everybody understood what it was that you had, you had kind of, um, moved away from so that they can understand the, the magnitude of the pull of whatever it was that you were moving toward. Um, yeah, it's probably big. pretty esoteric for anyone listening. Um, it's all skiing is kind of glumped into one, but there are, there's the very regimented routes that you are probably familiar with that you see in the Olympics. And then these, these newer aspects of skiing, which are so much more rooted in nature and, um, and, and expression. Um, what I do now is work with the film and photo side. Um, I mean, that's kind of how I get paid, but my passion is to, to, and it's kind of the, uh, the, I guess what's popular now is, uh, free skiing, which is where you go out into the pristine environment. You put your one track down it, uh, and you move your mark and your expression that way. And right now the industry is about extreme, right? Like who can do the gnarliest thing, Hmm. uh, or bringing tricks off natural cliffs. And, um, in that environment, you don't get a second chance to try things. Um, once there's a track in the shot, it's done. So it's not like what you see in the Olympics where, uh, these are manicured lines or manicured courses saying, or the half pipe or, um, you know, these things that you, you've been exposed to on TV at the X games. Um, what I do is all in the natural environment. Um, most people know it by people getting out of helicopters, you know, it's usually only accessible from a helicopter or hiking. And it's a, it's all about um, being as remote and, uh, you know, just you in the mountain. And then capturing that aesthetically with either film or photo is how it's kind of um, come into popularity. All kinds of magazines and, you know, this whole backcountry movement. Mm. Okay, so you ended up, I mean, the, the piece that... Uh that I think we could probably talk about for another hour would be the fact that you've, um, you've been quite successful in that arena. And, uh, if you are at all curious as to what Lindsay is very good at, um, she's on a handful of Warren Miller films. She's on Teton gravity research. She's on just about any, anything that entails film and mountain skiing. Um, chances are you're going to you're going to be able to find Lindsay doing her thing and it's really fascinating and it's really cool and to hear her talk about um kind of the the back end of that which is as soon as 
as soon as there's a track introduced to the frame, the shot's done. It just kind of puts a whole new layer into, into context for me um, as to how important those shots are and how, how the, the wiring of that particular athlete needs to be in order to make, uh, in order to make that something that's doable. Um, so that's fascinating. I would love to provide you an opportunity to kind of fill in the, the, the blanks here, but I also want to give you enough time to tell us uh, the adventure story that, that you kind of had set aside for us as well. Um, so if I'm missing anything by, by laying it out there like that, Lindsay, by all means, please jump in and, and kind of fill, fill the, the gaps. But Yeah, it's funny that you, you kind of said I've been in a bunch of films by now, but um, also the culture has kind of shifted to this um, more – alternative ways to for self-expression and GoPro I think has probably been one of the biggest ones beyond the films because then as a, an artist I could have more control uh, over what I was creating versus expecting the photographer or cinematographer to capture the, the, the shot right typically what you're used to seeing is like this far away human um, skiing down this far away gnarly peak yeah. And with GoPro, um, as one of my sponsors, I could have so much more control. And uh, they probably brought me the most. Um, the GoPro films now are up to like millions and millions of watchers versus um, some of these ski films. So it's just it's just interesting how uh, the culture has shifted that way too. You are currently sponsored by some names that most of us are probably familiar with. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, probably. Is it okay to mention them or no? No, of course. Okay. It would be great. Um, the ones that people probably know the best are our GoPro and uh, Eddie Bauer. Yeah. Those are probably the big, the most mainstream sponsors. Uh, the other ones are um, kind of more specific to specific gears. So G3 is a, um, a binding sponsor that helps me with AT gear, which is allows us to go up and down the mountain with ski touring. Um, and I also started my own, after really struggling to find equipment that was at the high enough level in female sizes, um, because when you're really trying to perform at the highest level, you need really high-performance gear. And what I kept finding with every different group I worked with was that, um, you know, I was coming from ski racing where the equipment is very high level, whether you're a guy or a girl, but, um, that isn't necessarily transferred over to the free skiing world. They're not necessarily making really stiff, um, charging boots for the retail market in the women's size, uh, because most recreational skiers are not looking for a hard charging boot, so they just don't make them. Um, and yet they're promoting, they're asking us to to do rad things, <laughs> then we still need the, the gear to do it. So I started creating my own ski line um, after working with so many different brands um, that just didn't see the value in in making hard-charging skis. So as a designer, um, I designed the construction and started my own ski brand with some friends um, called Sego, S-E-D-O, um, but really under the Unicorn Picnic brand. So to find basically everything that I'm designing 
I'll do collaborations with different groups and different sponsors um, to design my own, primarily for function, but also uh, for fun. So many things packed under that. I can't wait for people to find uh, what else is hiding. Unicornpicnic.com. This episode's brought to you in part by Bill and Paul's Sporthouse. Bill and Paul's has been at the center of West Michigan's outdoor scene since 1961. The summer months are finally upon us, folks, and whether you plan to take your medicine paddling our beautiful waterways, hiking our wonderful trails, or otherwise exploring new adventures from the great Mitten State and beyond, the experts at Bill and Paul's are your trusted resource to visit beforehand. They carry all the outdoor clothing brands, kayaking gear, and camping equipment to ensure you do it right this year. Find them online at BillandPauls.com or walk into their store, conveniently located at 1200 East Paris in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mention Adventure Deficit and receive 10% off of your total checkout by using promo code AD2018, either in person or online. Again, that's AD2018. Bill and Paul's Adventurous People Shop Here. Um, Lindsay, do you have some time to share with us uh, your adventure story. Yeah, I've been trying to decide what story to tell because there are so many, um, you know, and I might, I might, uh, you know, give you a choice. One of them, there's the story of like the biggest cliff that I've ever hit and what it took to, to hit that and what that experience of a 70 foot cliff that, um, um, females had never hit. So that's, that's one story. I'm sold um, already on that. Okay. <laughs> uh, another one um, could be, you know, a mistake. Hmm. Um, you know, what one of the biggest mistakes that I've made and what um, what that has taught me um, or injuries um, or um, or surprises. Like uh, I recently, we did a full season of trying to ski all of the national parks um with the 100 year anniversary of our national parks and um and that required winter camping in some of the coldest places in the world and what i learned about that about um just how how resourceful we are and how little we actually need as humans to um to get to get what we need so those are kind of my three options if uh you can choose which story you'd like to hear. Oh man, all three. Um, in, the interest <laughs> of, in the interest of time, so we've got 70, 70 foot drop. We've got uh, winter camping in the hundred uh, hundred parks. Fully, fully, like uh, on our own power in the middle of literally nowhere for days and days. So, and what that taught me in the middle of winter. Oh, that's that's cool, and I like the fact that we're talking about our national parks. Um, gosh, I feel like I am going to be upsetting some folks if I go with something that's seemingly less action packed. Well, the good the good stuff lives in all of it for oh, sure. Oh my There's word! Different lessons, right? Yeah, I want to pick the winter camping piece. Okay, is, is that cool? Absolutely. Awesome. So, yeah. So, um, the film came out. Um, I believe this last year, um, and it's called Monumental, and uh, it it really showcases the skiing. But um, for me, it was such a huge learning piece because I am a typical girl, and I get cold really easily. 
And I had always heard all these crazy stories of, you know, these gnarly mountain men and women um, suffering for days and days and days at high, high level or high elevations in the cold. And I was like, that's not for me. <laughs> I like the fun parts of skiing, not the miserable suffering parts. Um, and I've been cold a lot. You know, um, I have frostbite in my hands and toes and uh, paid the consequences, meaning like I, I have um, less circulation than, than I probably most people do. And it's funny, everyone's like, oh, you're a winter athlete. You probably love the cold. And truth is, I'm probably more sensitive to it than, than anyone these days because <laughs> I've frostbitten myself so many times. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so I was really resistant to, oh my gosh, we are going to, I have to carry everything on my back that I'm going to need to ski and survive for 10 days in the middle of the most remote part of Yellowstone in the winter. People no are used way. to thinking of Yellowstone, um, and when they think of it, they think, think, think of the summer, you know, where there you can see amazing animals and, and geysers and maybe go camping. Well, the winter, it is some of the deepest, darkest, coldest, um, and, and alone. Uh, most of the roads are actually closed in the winter, uh, and sometimes you can get snow machine access into a few of them. So we, we used snow machines um, in, this is in February, to access about 10 miles of a 15-mile uh, in, in to get uh, to this base camp where we would hike and ski the lines um, anywhere we could see, all self-propelled um, access uh and set up winter base camp um and we had to be fully fully sustaining on our own meaning if you got hurt there's no way to get out there's there's no self-service there's no uh you know we're really self-reliant or if you got too cold there's no one to come save you (laughs) um so really confronting that um was was challenging because my brain told me that uh, I get cold inside, so how could I possibly survive a night um, in just a tent in negative degree weather on my own? Um, I really thought that there was a part of me that thought I would I was going to die, <laughs> and that sounds funny, but I absolutely had that feeling. Yeah, if it was um, a real fear, then it's real. And the, yeah, and then the only um, you know reasoning to not is that I was going with people that that had done this type of thing before and and supposedly if you went prepared you weren't going to die and and so yeah we packed in um for a couple really long days of getting uh with 70 pound packs on our back while uh while ski touring up into um into these this remote area where again the only way we're even finding our way in is uh, is using a skill set that um that i hadn't practiced before um and with a couple full days of ski touring with always multiple uh packs and also sleds that we were pulling uh we carried everything into into base camp and i was just ecstatic at that right um right better than i expected Uh, and then 
my first night of, uh, you know, everything is new, right? Setting up, how do you, how do you, um, pitch a tent on the snow correctly? (laughs) Uh, and, uh, what I found was that, oh my gosh, it is so much even better than, than summer camping because snow acts, um, not only as insulator, but it, (laughs) as opposed to the, the ground, it, um, shifts to to for your body right it's almost like it's like memory um, foam (laughs) yeah it's nature's foam so after several the first night was yeah cold um didn't sleep super well but after that i was so impressed of how my body absolutely uh regulated and transformed and uh and i was happier than i've ever been and so surprised what our bodies are capable of um in adjusting it, they they adjust and if we give them the chance and so it really shifted my idea of what what we really need that we are certain that we need you know what i'm saying um there were before this trip i was certain that i needed all of these um you know the basic needs shelter food uh Fire and water, water yeah. is really, but so much less. We need so much less than I than I believed before. I thought you needed um, a form of heat outside of your own body, and with the right equipment, it turns out you don't. Oh, I see. I when you said we need water, shelter, and I my third one was fire. You didn't use fire because right. you were inside the national park, and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Could so, you use, I mean, you could use stoves, obviously, for your food, right? Right. Okay. We, right. We couldn't have fire, right? We used, we used stoves um, and and propane to to melt water mm-hmm. and to and to cook food. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, that was that was the only type of fire we had. So there was so and there was no way to get warm from that. Yeah. And so so you really had to find alternatives, and that's where I really found just how efficient our bodies can be. Yeah. Um, with the right equipment. Yeah. yeah totally. And then, and then beyond that, uh, skiing and accessing lines, all human powered, um, and then performing also, um, knowing that you're really on your own out there was also another shift in, um, mental strength that I also realized I absolutely have. And, and you're also making decisions on your own without anyone telling you this slope is safe. Um, so there's just so many more aspects to mountain living uh, that these types of trips expose you to um, as far as skill sets go with really living with nature and and working with it uh, than I was ever aware of before. You know, before it had been, the mountains had been this place to perform, um, but this trip really exposed me to how combined performance with survival and, and thriving within a community um, yeah, in the dead of winter. That's so cool. Um, and I'm glad you touched on this, but what a different set of rules as far as consequence for a big mountain skier who's about to go do something that's um, life-threatening, right? Yeah, it's one thing to jump off a cliff um, when you're at least aware of if something goes wrong, there are 
services <laughs> in, in somewhat reasonable amount of time, you know, whether it's access to a hospital or um, even uh, calling for help with a helicopter. It, it, you do change your, I know I change my decision making mm-hmm. um, when those different aspects are in, in play because uh, so much of what we do is so remote. Um, sometimes even in third world countries where you, you have to take that into account when you're about to go step up to something really crazy. Totally. That's part of that adaptation. Just because it's part of your mind doesn't mean it gets tossed out. That's you adapting to a different set of, of risk, right? Yeah. And it's so much more applicable to life. Um, Mm. you know, now I know, I know how I would take my family out if, if we didn't, it was so empowering, you know, to, to, to be able to say, yeah, I could survive and help other people survive in a natural environment. Um, not, not everyone can say that. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the highlights from that trip that stand out? If I had to say, Hey, pick two things that just kind of stick with you or if there's more share but well pretty much any trip where you're you're living in the outdoors i just came back from mount kilimanjaro um with mandy moore actually and she had never and she had never actually been camping ever and her first um introduction to being in the outdoors is, was climbing mount kilimanjaro which is a pretty pretty awesome way to to be introduced um and sorry i forgot your question like what, what were the takeaways of just curious to know what were two of the highlights from the trip oh, in your in yeah in Yellowstone. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, like I said, I was starting to say, uh, whenever it's an outdoors, when you're living outdoors, you start to get really down to the <laughs> you go back to the basics really quickly, and um, sleep and and your bowel movements and food are kind of the primary focus like yeah. everything is around are you um are you hydrated are you sleeping and you know how is your <laughs> how, how regular how's your tummy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um because that's you know it's everything and if you don't feel well you you're in big trouble so so the highlights you know it, you end up talking about poop a lot for sure <laughs> um and you get really, you get to know people really well and you, you want to, these are your teammates and you're only as strong as your weakest link as you, you've heard. So you want to make sure that your team is, is, uh, is, is doing well. Um, and so I guess my highlight is that it's, this is, uh, these are trips that have brought my ski career full circle to, from, from an individual sport back to a team sport. Oh, cool. Uh, where you're really out for your friends and your buddies because that's all you have out there. So healthy communication and um, and keeping everyone healthy um, and really bringing a strong skill set where if something did go wrong, you're a really great um, part of a team versus just being out there to show what you can do. Does mm. that make sense? Totally. Yeah, you're drawing from a pool of, of individuals who are all equipped with different skills and different attributes you hope so. yeah, yeah. right yeah. right That's otherwise cool. you're you're a guide and you are taking that responsibility for your entire group is something i'm learning these days but wow 
Hmm. Really respect those guides. That's a lot of responsibility they're taking on. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of heft to shoulder for sure. Mm -hmm. So cool. So the community piece was was huge, um, and just getting to know your your pals and leaning in on on kind of your level of trust with each and every one of them. Um, yeah, and then the other one is just recognizing that I'm so much more capable, even um, even as a female who is feels pretty vulnerable in cold situations of just how resilient my body can be. Cool. And therefore, if I can do it, then anyone can do it. <laughs> Those are my takeaways. Thanks for sharing your stories. Absolutely. A couple of quick fire type questions, um, and then we can get you out of here. So I have to circle back to the Mandy Moore thing and Kilimanjaro because um, I have been interviewing more and more uh, alpine mountaineering type uh, folks. I'm starting to learn a little bit more about um, some of the dangers, some of the inherent risks, the things that... uh, come into play when you're climbing big mountains i am so curious to know how that went down you and mandy moore going to the top of kilimanjaro uh could i get like a two minute breakdown of that i'll hone in with my question um how did it come about what was the game plan and then um did you guys did did you guys execute it according to plan or were there changes yeah yeah so um it came about through my sponsor, Eddie Bauer, um, who is is inviting uh, some of these bigger name people to combine with, with us professionals on the team to go have an adventure and and uh, see where we, we connect. Um, so that was really cool. And Mandy had never actually been camping. Uh, I can't remember if I've said that already. Had never been camping, had never... Um, really spent time in nature and so but it she'd been to Tanzania multiple times for acting jobs and for uh, public service and um, she'd always looked up at the mountain and um, and wanted to climb to climb it Uh, so this was one of her childhood kind of dreams and she brought three of her her best friends her fiance and, and two good friends and I joined them to you know help help them navigate if they needed that um and they were super prepared and they had great attitudes and uh and they did it you know um there's a a couple highlights for me uh watching them overcome their fears or when when it got really hard um and watching them surprise themselves um, at what they were capable of um, and I think that's that's probably a cool lesson is uh, it's it's good to to sign up for hard things. Um, you know, so much of our life these days is about comfort and creating more comfort. Um, but we really shine as humans when we when we um, we intentionally do hard things and challenge ourselves, especially sometimes in um, in ways we're not sure that we can. And that's where I think mentorship and um, and having guides to make sure that the um, our safety's in mind um, can help us navigate and recognize where where we are so much more capable than we thought we we were. And that's kind of my passion these days is is to create that opportunity for more people um, to find out for themselves. Totally. Well, I'll inspire them. 
and then I'll send them to you when they're ready. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> That's so cool. And Mandy walked away with having obviously uh, taken part in something that, that aided her growth. Um, you know, she and her friends were talking all the time. Yeah. And the biggest part of where, where I heard the shifts were she started talking about how they were going to they were going to do more outdoorsy things. You know, they were going to plan more, more, um, yes. more hikes. They, they decided to start a hiking club. They all got um, tattoos of, of the mountain on their, on their foot. Um, and like I said, started a hiking club and started planning other mountain adventures. And to me, that was like, check, you know, like yeah. we did our, our work here is done. <laughs> you know, we've introduced these people to the mountains and now they're going to own it on their own. And, so cool. and obviously with the, the exposure that Mandy could have, um, cause she has, you know, millions of followers to get the more people out into connecting with nature in any way is part of my mission. And so, um, if she's spreading the good word, then that does a real service for everybody or for, you know, for our planet, for our, um, to our people and, and hopefully a uh, reconnection with the, with nature. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the ad- adventure deficit world, which is considerably smaller, but uh, it's a mission nonetheless. It is our mission, and uh, we absolutely believe in uh, something very similar to what you're talking about. And we just basically yeah. say we, we call that taking our medicine. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And, and more and more, I'm sure you've heard, like, it's even being prescribed. I've like, heard that in uh, Japan. China and Japan, yeah. um, doctors are prescribing. Like, you've uh, got to go play in the woods for a while. No, literally, like, uh, woods walks. Like, you have for your prescription is you have to prove that yeah. you, are, you took a, a walk in the woods for this many minutes. I have as heard part this. of the therapy. So, do, yeah. you, do you have any idea what they call it? I'm going to research that. Um, I think, yeah, I'd have to look it up, too, what, okay. it's, what the technical word of it is, but... Uh, who is your biggest hero? One of them is Oprah. I just, uh, I really, I'm making some assumptions of what she kind of had to face to, to follow what she knew was true for her, um, and create it where it didn't exist before. She didn't, as far as I know, didn't have people to look up to, to say, oh, well, that's the way you do it. I just follow what they do. And that's often how I have felt. Um, I don't necessarily have, um, a path to follow or a you know, this this life has been very much creating it as I go versus having people to follow. And um, so I really respect other people that are doing that. And Pioneers, um, it's a really, it's not easy. Um, it's, it's become, I'm watching people behind me absolutely benefit from <clears throat> the little, little impact that I've had. Um, I'm making it easier for the next generation. And so I really respect what I imagine Oprah has done for her culture, um, for also trying to heal the world um, through talking about some tough stuff in a public way. Um, And then, you know, breaking stereotypes of what um, people expect to see um, in media. So Mm. whether it's um, females, uh, black females, um, I, I just, I respect her in so many ways. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about um, books. Do you yeah. want to share with uh, with us what you've been reading? <laughs> well, right now I have all these book assignments because I'm working with um, 
a happiness doctor. Um, she has a PhD in happiness. And so I'm about to start, it actually starts today, um, a six week happiness, um, going to happiness school and, um, really learning about how to reach our highest, um, the highest expression of ourselves in this lifetime. And um, one of the books that is in my homework is called um, You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. And um, essentially any injury we have uh, represents a certain um, learning lesson or uh, it, it has uh, an emotional component to it. For example, like your knees, something that we often hurt in skiing, represent moving forward in the world. And your right side is your masculine side, your doing side. Your left side is your feminine side, your receiving side, your softer side. Um, and if those are not in balance, there's, especially as athletes, we can we can get injured easily. And every time I've been injured, there's a lesson has come come with that. And so this is kind of a um, one of the ways to start looking at our patterns. Um, both emotionally and physically to see where we might be, um, unconscious. So that is, that's a book that I'm using for, for part of my homework. Okay. Last question. And uh, then we can part ways and hopefully catch up at a later point in this wonderful life. But, uh, I do want to let you get going. So, um, six year old Lindsay Dyer, um, staring you dead in the face. What type of advice do you have for her? Oh, that's a question I use on my podcast. Um, what I would say to her is um, embrace your weird. We want to be accepted in society and we want to fit in and we want to um, be able to relate to other people. And so I think we often look around at each other and um, look in the outside for our direction and where we are to go and what we're supposed to do and say and think and dress and all of it. Um and so often, so many of us, I think, maybe hide our authentic selves because we don't necessarily see it reflected in the outside world, whether it's in media or, you know, media kind of pushes that you're supposed to look a certain way and, and, and act a certain way. And, um, and I guess I would tell that young girl that, um, that just to take a healthy, a healthy dose of all of it, um, but also that the weird and the different parts that you don't see reflected back are part of your um, are part of your gift, and uh, and instead of you know squashing them or kind of shrugging them off or brushing them aside, they are absolutely um, what you're here to um, express in the world and to find ways to express them and people that will um, support them. Fantastic stuff. Lindsay Dyer, everybody. Lindsay, thank you so much for uh, for your time. Again, guys, if you ever want to uh, check out what Lindsay's got going on, she's got a pad- podcast. Um, it's called Showing Up with Lindsay Dyer. You can find her on iTunes or there's a direct link on her site. www.unicornpicnic.com holds all of her nonprofits and any of her brands that she's working on. Um, Lindsay's got... Uh, some pretty high-profile guests that she'll uh, she'll sit down with and interview, and there's a lot of lot of learning that can take place. So, um, if you're curious, uh, showing up with Lindsay Dyer. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks thanks for the interest.
Tyler Nelson Day. Yeah, you too. It was really good speaking with you.